Last week we, uh, we started our study off in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I just want to start us off now this week reading our, our passage again. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we will read verses 1 through 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for another opportunity to gather for the preaching of your word as part of our corporate worship together this Sunday morning. This is the highlight of our gathering as your word informs and instructs us, convicts us, and serves as the foundation for our worship as individual believers in the body of Christ. We pray that you would bless this time now, enable me to clearly articulate and explain the text, and give eagerness and attentiveness to the congregation as they listen and worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Last week, as I said, we began our study through 1 Thessalonians 2, and we saw that Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonian church, a church that he held very dear to himself during a time when there were opposers who were infiltrating and trying to discredit him and his ministry by essentially saying that he was a false teacher. We also noted that the Thessalonian church at this time was also enduring hardship and persecution and oppression, which can make one prone to give in to false teaching or to forsake or compromise on the truth. And it's in these contexts that Paul writes to the Thessalonians basically to set things straight against his opposers and to encourage the Thessalonians to remain faithful. And he does this by sharing his own life as an example, as a model of genuine gospel-driven ministry. Last week, we defined ministry as work and service commissioned by God, done unto the Lord and for the church. And we then looked at the first of three marks of genuine gospel-driven ministry that Paul lays out here in the text here in chapter 2. We saw how he laid out the principles of genuine gospel-driven ministry, starting with the principle that ministry is not in vain. Ministry is not in vain, but in fact rooted in divine purpose. 
rooted in God's purposes to save and redeem souls through the gospel. And because of those divine purposes which are perfect, unchanging, and unwavering, Paul gives the second principle, which is that ministry is pursued with boldness and confidence. He then provides the third principle that ministry is gospel-centered. And we saw that Paul's ministry was rooted in the preaching of the gospel with every opportunity that he was given, whether that was being in prison in Philippi in stocks or traveling to Thessalonica and preaching the gospel in the synagogues, which brought about the conversion and salvation of the Thessalonian believers. And we saw that when ministry is gospel-centered, it will inevitably be opposed because gospel truth is opposed by Satan himself. Paul then moves on to the fourth principle, that genuine gospel-driven ministry is without error, impurity, or deceit. And these were, as we saw, three characteristics of false teachers of that day, and certainly of today's day and age of false teachers too. And Paul defended his character in his ministry, and we'll see more of this today as well, by reminding the Thessalonians of, his, of their own experiences with and their witness of Paul, how he preached without error, with complete purity, and without any deceptive motives. And finally, last week, Paul gave us the fifth principle that ministry is approved by God and done to please God. We saw that Paul was always cognizant of his unworthiness, that he had been saved and redeemed through Christ, not by anything that he had done, but through Christ's calling and saving alone. He was essentially examined and deemed fit by God, approved by God for ministry, the ministry of preaching the gospel, and he was then entrusted with the gospel not to do what he wanted, but to do the work of the Lord, and he responded to God's calling and his approval with willing, obedient, and persevering service. And this morning we're going to go through the next two and uh, two marks of gospel-driven ministry. We're going to look at the practice of gospel-driven ministry, and we're going to look at the products of genuine gospel-driven ministry, and then hopefully time permitting, I would like to provide a few practical implications and conclusions. But let's talk about now the second mark of genuine gospel-driven ministry, the practice of ministry. And this is found in verses 5 through 10. And you can also follow along in your outline if you have that with you. The first practice of genuine gospel-driven ministry, as Paul outlines here, is that ministry is conducted with humility. Ministry is conducted with humility. In verses 5 and 6 here, Paul says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. I mean, these two verses here, Paul piggybacks on what he said in the preceding two verses, in verses 3 and 4, concerning the motivations and the basis for ministry. Paul says that as his intentions were pure and without deception, and his, then his approach to preaching and teaching and shepherding were also humble and not self-elevating. He says here in verse 5, we never came with flattering speech. He said he never came with flattery. Oftentimes in flattery, the flatterer desires to gain something from the flattered. In other words, flattery is not really for the benefit and uplifting of the one who is flattered. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says it this way, a flatterer is a person who manipulates rather than communicates. A flatterer can use either truth or lies to achieve his unholy purpose, which is to control your decisions for his own profit. End quote. 
Now here we also see a couple of other things that Paul does. Paul refers to the Thessalonians' own personal experiences with him as well as God's own witness of Paul as well. He says in verse 5, As you know, and God is witness, he appeals to what the Thessalonians had plainly seen of him as well as his approval by God in being a minister to them. And he says this as evidence that he was not trying to get anything from the Thessalonians. Based on what they saw of him in his conduct and his character, he had no desire to garner any financial or personal gains from them. You see, essentially Paul is stating here, since you personally know and have seen my character and my motives, you know and God knows that I was not trying to flatter you for my own personal gain. In verse 6, Paul goes on, he says, given his reputation and recognition as an apostle of Christ, he could have theoretically played that card, if you will, in putting himself forward as deserving some pampering and personal satisfaction. He says there, we could have asserted our authority as apostles of Christ with the intention, obviously, of seeking glory from men, but he did not do this. He could have, for example, in what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he could have said, I'm worthy of double honor because of how hard I labor in preaching and teaching. But he didn't. Consider the example that if, say, Vody Bauckham came to guest preach on a Sunday morning here, I think we as a church would say that this would be a special occasion that we would decorate this room a little bit more nicely. Maybe we would have flowers around the pulpit. We would probably lodge him in a nice hotel in town, and we would likely have a special meal for him the night before. And all of this, I think all of us would agree, would be justified in our eyes. This is a man who is well-regarded, well-respected. He is a strong preacher of the Word of God, and we would want to show him our care and our appreciation, would we not? This was kind of the context that Paul was getting at, that because of his reputation and because many would have wanted to take care of him, if you will, because of his reputation, he could have played on that, but he did not. He did not. He conducted his ministry among the Thessalonians in humility. He did not wish to garner the praises and glory from men. He was not interested in elevating himself among the Thessalonians and having them give him special treatment. He desired that God would be glorified through his work and through the ministry to the Thessalonians. And this is opposite to false teachers, right? False teachers in their arrogance and pride desire the praises of men and deny God his rightful glory. And this brings us then to the second practice of genuine gospel-driven ministry. Ministry is conducted with genuine care. Look in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Here Paul introduces the motherly quality of a leader, the motherly quality of a leader. The image that he puts forth here is the tender care and the protection and provision of a mother nursing her child. The nursing child here is helpless, in need of every assistance, and his mother gently, sacrificially, and naturally, without hesitation, embraces and fulfills all of these needs. And if you are a father, you know that this analogy is very appropriate 
As fathers, we clearly see the unique role of mothers to our young children. And this is most especially highlighted when our children are the smallest as when they are nursing infants. Mothers tenderly care for and nourish and nurture their children. And similarly, Paul taught and provided spiritual sustenance to the Thessalonians. He and he followed this with his physical presence and actions of caring and nurturing and demonstrating what he taught by personal example before them. And in verse 8, he goes even further in expressing his genuine care for the Thessalonians. He says he desired to be with them. He expressed his affection for them. Not only was the gospel itself declared, but it was lived out in life-on-life activities among the Thessalonians. And why is this? Paul gives us his motivation at the end of verse 8. He says, because you had become very dear to us. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Familiar passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall Talk with talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And here we see the, the charge of the Lord to parents. And the emphasis here is the constant saturation of daily life in the family with the word of God, with the commandments of the Lord, with remembrance of what the Lord has done. And this was to be passed down from generation to generation through the life-on-life daily activities within the family, and specifically from parents to children. And Similarly, Paul preached the word of God and lived it out before the Thessalonians with the ultimate purpose of the Thessalonians then doing the same in their church and in their ministries. This now brings us to the third practice of gospel-driven ministry. Ministry is conducted laboriously. Ministry is conducted laboriously. Let's come back to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Paul writes, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. It must be recognized, I'm I'm sure it's not hard to recognize that the work of ministry is hard. And Paul uses the terms labor and hardship to describe the work of ministry. The ESV uses the word toil instead of hardship. I I like that word better. Labor and toil. And these two terms convey a sense of painfulness, painfulness in the work. One commentary distinguished these two terms as labor being hardship in bearing and toil being hardship in doing. So there is Hardship in bearing and hardship in doing. Painfully bearing and painfully doing. Now, to be clear, Paul is not trying to imply that we should not accept help from anyone or that we should simply painfully work in ministry alone. He's not trying to paint the picture that one should silently bear pain and bitterness in ministry. And we see that Paul obviously welcomed help and support. He received help and support from the Thessalonian church. We see in Philippians that he received financial support from the Philippian church. 
Paul was certainly not saying do not accept help when you're working in ministry. We also must understand here contextually the climate in which Paul was ministering in. in the climate of false teachers who were in it for self-gratification at the expense of others. He was, he was ministering amongst a, a climate of false teachers who ordinarily and regularly were trying to benefit at the expense of other people. And so for Paul here, he wanted to go to the other extreme. He wanted the Thessalonians to see the purity of his motives, that all he wanted to do was preach the gospel and care for them rather than take anything from them in the process. He did not do anything out of selfishness or conceit. But obviously to accomplish this, it undoubtedly made his labor and toil great. Now, what type of labor and toil exactly is Paul referring to here? There is obviously the hard work of ministry itself, which can obviously involve hardship in bearing and hardship in doing. But in Paul's case here, it also involved practical work, practical vocation as a tent maker. And this manual physical work obviously was done so that he could earn money to support himself and therefore not rely on or depend upon others for support. Paul said that he labored here, we see in verse 9, he labored night and day. In other words, he would use every waking moment for work, work in ministry and work in vocation. He likely worked throughout the day in opportunities for ministry among the Thessalonians, and then after all had gone to sleep, he likely worked at night on his other vocation. You wonder when he would sleep. And Paul was doing this so that he would not muddy the waters, so to speak. He did not want to leech off of anyone. This obviously would have undermined his credibility as a preacher of the gospel. And so rather than depending on others and expecting from others their support, he did the hard work both in ministry and in vocation. And this caused much labor and toil. We know that Paul was obviously a supporter of work. If you turn just a few pages over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he outlines even more why work was necessary. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10, he writes to the Thessalonians, he said, Now we command you, brother, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, there are those two words again, we kept working night and day, there's those two words again, so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give this, we used to give this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So here we see the role of work, labor and toil in ministry, if you will. There's the, the work itself involved in ministry. And then there is the work that is necessary to support and gird up the work of ministry. And also the work that is done that reflects one's character. The, uh, the imagery of the sluggard 
and lazy man as depicted in Proverbs contrasts with Paul's character. In Proverbs 26, verses 15 and 16, it says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. And then in verse 16, it says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. So from here, what, what we see here is idle and lazy people lack wisdom, lack credibility in addition to their lack of work. In contrast, we see Paul's example of ministry being both labor and toil. This practical work that was done coupled with the work of ministry itself. And and why was it this way for, for Paul? Why couldn't it have been easier? I think he lays out what was at stake and why it was necessary to labor and toil night and day. It was in verse 9 as he said, the proclamation to you of the gospel of God. That was ultimately what was at stake. What was at stake was the message of the gospel as well as the right manner in which that message was delivered as well as the character of the person delivering it. And this all involves labor and hardship. Charles Spurgeon said, Ministers giving thanks to God are ministers who have worked. And it's interesting to, to think that pouring oneself, laboring and toiling night and day for the work of the gospel gives rise to thanksgiving. It's almost ironic, right? But we see this in Paul's life. If you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, this is Paul's response to the labor and hardship night and day amongst the Thessalonian believers. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Labor and toil in ministry always gives rise to thanksgiving. On the contrary, thankfulness does not come from those who have not labored, or have only labored for their own selfish purposes or in pride. Let's go on now to the fourth practice of genuine gospel-driven ministry, which we'll find here in verse 10. Ministry is conducted above reproach. Conducted above reproach. Paul writes, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. And so here again we see Paul referring back to the eyewitness account of the Thessalonians themselves as well as God's witness of Paul's conduct as he he speaks of his character and his integrity basically. He says that He conducted himself devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly. These are three specific terms specially selected. Devoutly carries the meaning of accountability before God. Uprightly refers to right actions according to the law of God. And blamelessly refers to how one is seen by others. In other words, Paul's conduct could be assessed or judged to be right based on God's standards as well as man's observation. We see that Paul ensured that his actions did not undermine his message. In his conduct, he was able to be trustworthy to the Thessalonians as he preached and ministered to them. And his conduct left no opportunity for his opposers to successfully accuse him. They could criticize him. They could falsely accuse him. But they could not rightly and justly accuse him of wrongdoing. 
And as such, even in the face of outside opposition, Paul could appeal to his proper conduct, both right before God and right before men, which could not be denied. See, integrity, integrity is important in providing consistency between the messenger's message and the messenger's conduct, as well as providing authority of the messenger's message because of the messenger's reputation. So we've looked here now at the second of three marks of genuine gospel-driven ministry. Let's quickly go through the third and final mark of genuine gospel-driven ministry, the products of ministry, and we'll find this in verses 11 and 12. The first product here is that genuine gospel-driven ministry will uplift the brethren. It will uplift the brethren. In verse 11, Paul writes, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. The first product of Paul's ministry was the Thessalonians' salvation as well as a deeper walk with the Lord. You see that Paul has preached the gospel to them clearly without error. He's lived out the gospel amongst the Thessalonians. And in so doing here, he says that he exhorted and encouraged and implored each one of them as a father would his own children. And so pairing the gentleness and care like a mother from verse 7 Paul now exhorts and encourages and implores with the authority and leadership of a father with his children among the Thessalonians. John MacArthur writes, These are among the ways a father is to lead his children by exhorting them, encouraging them, and imploring them. This means coming alongside each of them personally in teaching them God's pattern for conduct. It means encouraging them to be faithful when the choices are hard. And it means warning them that there are consequences when they do wrong. End quote. Like a father with his children, Paul came alongside and urged the Thessalonians to walk in obedience. This is that exhortation. He motivated them to consistently obey, even in difficult circumstances. This is the encouragement. And he warned them from his own experiences of the consequences of deviating from God's instructions. That's the imploring Warren Wiersbe, again, in his commentary, says, quote, Christian encouragement must not become an anesthesia that puts us to sleep. It must be a stimulant that awakens us to do better. And as a result of the exhorting and encouraging and imploring from Paul, the believers in Thessalonia, Thessalonica were uplifted toward obedient and godly living. Paul taught them that they were to walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, obedient living that honors the Lord. And through his exhortation and encouragement and imploring, they were uplifted to walk in this manner and to exemplify this worthy walk before others. And then finally, the second product of genuine gospel-driven ministry is that ministry brings glory to God. Ministry brings glory to God. Paul says that he exhorted and encouraged and implored them so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We see that obedient Christians reflect God's glory. Obedient Christians please God, thereby bringing God glory. We glorify God as we walk in a manner worthy of Him and His calling. Obedience and godly living leads to conduct that is worthy of the God who calls us. 
It lifts high the kingdom of God and the glory of God that his people will be a part of for all eternity. In verse 12, that phrase, who calls you? Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. And that phrase is in the present tense. In essence, Paul is saying God is calling and continues to call you. Believers are continually being called to walk in a manner worthy of God and expectant of his kingdom and his glory. This same charge, walking in a manner worthy, is echoed throughout Paul's writing. In Ephesians 4, he tells the Ephesians, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Again, in Ephesians 5, verse 15, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. He says to the Colossians, in Colossians 1, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. A walk that is worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we see here that Paul modeled the conduct worthy of God's calling, and then he exhorts and encourages and implores the Thessalonian believers to also walk in a similar manner as he is walking. And by doing so, they will bring glory to God. So, as we've gone through these three marks of genuine gospel-driven ministry, the principles, the practice, and the products, I want to wrap up now in these last few minutes with providing five practical implications and some conclusions. Number one, genuine gospel-driven ministry flows from an obedient walk with God. We've seen here in Paul's personal description of ministry and his example that purity and correctness, correct motivation in accordance with God's purposes and personal integrity are vitally important in ministry. And these can only come from personal lives that are walking regularly in obedience before God. We read passages such as Psalm 19.14, David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And again in Psalm 119, verses 1-3, through 3, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Genuine gospel-driven ministry is an outflow of a regular daily walk in obedience before the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, There will not come out of any one of us that which is not in us. You must fill the pitcher, or you cannot go round and fill the cups of those who thirstily ask you for water. That which you impart of grace or life must be in yourself first. And when God has wrought it in you, then it shall be yours to work out. So the first implication here is genuine gospel-driven ministry flows from an obedient walk with God. Number two, genuine gospel-driven ministry withstands spiritual attack. In our passage here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uh, also stated that before men and God as witnesses, he could stand confident that his conduct was devout, upright, and blameless. He says in 
2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Nothing can derail ministry that is ordained by God and driven by his purposes. And this doesn't mean that ministry will not be hard, but it will withstand spiritual attack. Moreover, it will also withstand attempts to discredit the one who is ministering. As one pursues ministry with pure motives, according to God's purposes and with right conduct, that individual will be able to remain firm with confidence. Number three, genuine gospel-driven ministry embraces the vulnerable and needy. We saw from Paul's expression of tender care, his genuine care for the Thessalonians, that this was complete. It was impartial. It was not selective. He didn't go to a specific group of Thessalonians and only minister to them. He embraced all of them. And this included those who were in great need and those who were most vulnerable to being taken advantage of. In James chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James also understood, as Paul did, and taught that care and service toward the body of Christ was not to be not to be with favoritism, and it was to extend especially to the most vulnerable and needy. And so one question to ask ourselves as we serve in ministry, is there some unwarranted selectiveness to our ministry? Am I unwilling to minister to certain people? And if the answer is yes, we must repent and ask God to strengthen and equip us to minister to all who are his own. And fourth, genuine gospel-driven ministry is worthy to be modeled. Worthy to be modeled. And this is a recurring theme of Paul's letters. He said in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, you also became imitators of us. And he says this numerous times, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, to the Corinthian church, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Ephesians 5, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. We see here that Paul imitated Christ and modeled Christ before the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians then imitated him, and in so doing, they imitated the character of Christ as well in their own lives. And we can see how the Lord has worked through that, that through Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians and then the Thessalonians' ministry beyond, in chapter 1, verse 8, we see that the gospel was spread to Macedonia and Achaia. So genuine gospel-driven ministry is worthy to be modeled. And then finally, genuine gospel-driven ministry spreads the gospel. The point, the point of genuine gospel-driven ministry, ministry that follows the principles and practices and sees the products, will spread the good news to those who do not believe. 
And we see that firsthand here in the Thessalonian church. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Steve Lawson says, There is nothing that anyone could ever do for anyone else that rises to a higher level of importance than to bring the gospel to that person. Now, in closing, I, I know that much of what was spoken of here could be viewed as being most applicable to those who are in full-time ministry, particularly those who are in pastoral ministry. But I want to challenge you with a couple of applications of how this applies to those of us who may not be called to be in full-time ministry, may not be called to become pastors. Number one, we must pray for our pastors and shepherds that they would pursue genuine gospel-driven ministry according to the Word of God. So certainly much of what I said has a lot of applications to those who are in full-time ministry and who are pastors and shepherds. But the responsibility of the congregation is to pray for their pastors and shepherds that they would follow the Lord's model for genuine gospel-driven ministry as is found here in the Word of God. And we must keep our leaders accountable to God's standards and not our own preferences. And second, it's important to understand that the church is taught and led to imitate the character of the leaders overseeing them. And so while we may not be called to imitate our pastors by becoming pastors, we are called to model their character and certainly their leadership and modeling when it comes to the principles and the practice and the expected results of the areas of ministry where we are involved in. And so by extension, all that we've talked about actually applies to all of us in the body of Christ. All of us have been called as parts of the body of Christ to be involved in genuine gospel-driven ministry. And therefore, these marks apply just as much to each one of us. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This reminds me of the example of Stephen in Acts 6. Just turn with me briefly to Acts 6. In Acts 6, Acts 6, we see here at the beginning of Acts 6, we see the, the apostles calling on the church to select seven men to serve tables. That's what it says there in verse 2 of chapter 6. It is not desirable for us, sorry, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. The apostles called on the church to select seven men to serve tables. And here we see the selection of the first deacons in the church, if you will. Stephen, in this instance, was not called to join in the preaching ministry of the church. He was called to serve the church by caring for its members and ensuring its needs were met. And yet, yet when the opportunity and need arose, as in Acts 7, we see Stephen was equipped and ready to boldly preach the gospel. In fact, we see how Stephen was an obedient man of God. He walked in intimacy with the Lord. 
He was knowledgeable in the word of God and handled it properly. His conduct and character were above reproach, as evidenced by the fact that he was selected to be among the first seven deacons, first seven table servers. And we also see in Acts 6, at the end of Acts 6, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. His conduct and character were above reproach that his accusers could not even find fault in him. And he boldly preached the gospel and endured physical pain and suffering, and yet his death would usher in the dispersion of the gospel to the nations and the saving of souls for Christ. So we see a man here who was chosen with excellent character, to care for the needs and to serve the needs in the church who was also equipped to preach the word of God and to preach the gospel. Let us consider where God has sovereignly placed us in his church, his unique gifting and equipping for each of us as part of the body of Christ and the opportunities before us to serve and minister and then to pursue our roles as God has ordained according to the principles and practices of genuine gospel-driven ministry, thankful to be used by the Lord to accomplish his purposes, the products of ministry through our faithful service. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to open your word together, to consider what you have shown and taught us through the life of your servant, Paul, and the example of the Thessalonian church. Genuine gospel-driven ministry is the vehicle that you have designed for the edification of the saints and the evangelization of the lost. Lord, may your spirit help us to examine our hearts as we consider our motivations for serving. May we do so with pure motives and with correct conduct. Help us to serve wholeheartedly, understanding the labor and toil involved in caring for the saints and sharing the gospel with the lost. And would you encourage your people as we see your spirit work through us for the building up and equipping of the church and the saving of souls for your kingdom. May this cause us to respond in praise and thanksgiving to you and joy and appreciation for the ones you have surrounded us with in the church as partners in ministry. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close our service.